If you got your Bible, go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. So I'm not, um, I'm not the type to cry a lot. Um, you know, some people, they just sing like one song about Jesus, and they're just like in tears, and they're weeping. Uh, and they just, you know, all they have to do is talk about God, and they get all kind of choked up. And I'm, I'm just never, I've never been like that. And I, I honestly wish I were more like that, and I've actually prayed for God to make me more like that, and he's answered at some points, but not at others, and he's, well, he always answers. Sometimes he says yes, no, sometimes he says maybe or wait, um, and so at this point, that's not really the type of person I am. Maybe God will change me. You know, I got a little more emotional when I had kids, and, you know, I, I get choked up when I watch, you know, those sappy YouTube videos sometimes too, but overall, I'm not much of a per person that's not going to just cry over things, and I don't cry over spiritual things all that often, which made what happened last year uh, in the spring of 2018 a little bit surprising to me. I was sitting on our back patio because it was like when the Florida weather's still nice out, and uh, it was cool, and I was sitting, and I was reflecting, I was praying, and I was thinking about why are we starting this new church? Why are we here? Why are we doing this? At that point, we hadn't even had a real worship service yet. We had gathered, you know, some folks, some of whom are still here today as a team to kind of help things get off the ground and folks who are invested in the church. But we, we, you know, we didn't meet here. We didn't have space. We just were, we were just a dream that God had put in our hearts to start a new church. And I was thinking about why we were doing that. Why are we doing that? And the reason we're doing that, and I was thinking about that in that moment, was so that people would know the name of Jesus. So people would know the name of Jesus. But I started to think, and this is what started to bring tears to my eyes. Now, it wasn't like ugly cry, like snot running down kind of cry. And it wasn't like for hours, but it was genuine and it was real. I started to cry about the fact, and I started to grieve over the fact that people in this community don't know the name of Jesus. And then I started to think, they, many people do know the name of Jesus, but they don't have any idea what that name means. They believe in what sometimes I call the cliche Jesus. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, Jesus, you know, like the, the sort of religious, you know, principle or superstitious, you know, symbol or like that's what the wacky, you know, fundamentalists believe. Or they believe in Jesus like I call the cuss word Jesus. And you all know what that means. That's where you hit your hammer, hit your thumb with a hammer. You can hit your hammer, a hammer won't hurt. But if you hit your thumb with the hammer, that will hurt. And they may say the name of Jesus and call on his name, but that's not, I think, what the Bible's talking about when it says to call on the name of Jesus. People know the cliche Jesus, they know the cuss word Jesus, but few people know the real powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to earth gave his life as a perfect sacrifice for sin, was buried and raised from the dead, and now reigns as the king of everything and one day will return. Very few people know the real name of that Jesus, and that's why we're starting this church, and that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. And there's really no better way to do that than through the book of John, the book of John. Introduced this last week and talked about, um, do, we have, uh, do we have that slide? Jesus, the word, next one. There we go, the book of John. Uh, and, uh, and I introduced this last week and talked about John was a, m a man who actually met Jesus when he was 
just pro- probably in his late teens or early 20s. He was, he was barely out of high school. They didn't have high school in those days, but if they did, he would have just barely been out of high school, maybe still in the last senior year of high school. And he met Jesus, and Jesus changed his life. And he walked with Jesus, and he saw Jesus do all of these amazing things. He, he watched Jesus turn water into wine. He watched Jesus heal people who were sick with incurable diseases. He saw people, he saw Jesus take a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish and feed thousands and thousands of people with it. He saw Jesus walk on top of the surface of the sea and, and proclaim to them that he is, I am, the great and mighty God who created the world. He saw Jesus lays, raise Lazarus from the dead. John was there, and he saw all of this, and he was there when, when Jesus was betrayed by their mutual friend named Judas, someone who had walked with them and been a part of what they were doing and turned aside and decided he wanted the, the reward that was put on Jesus' head more than he wanted Jesus and betrayed Jesus and betrayed his friends. He was there when Judas turned him over, Jesus over to the authorities, and he was accused tried and convicted for political crimes and theological heresy, neither of which, he he was guilty of neither, but he was still arrested and convicted and sentenced. And John was there when Jesus was sentenced to death, when he was flogged with a Roman cat of nine tails that would rip the skin off of his back, and he carried his cross up the hill to Calvary. John was there when Jesus was nailed to the cross and hung there until he died and cried out, it is finished, and he'd taken the sins of the world on his shoulders. And John was there when Jesus was raised from the dead and saw him who had been dead and was now alive. He was there when Jesus was ascended and taken back up into heaven, promising one day to return. And I said last week, and I, I actually still believe it this week, that one of the main reasons I think the Christian faith has credibility is because people like John spent the rest of their life telling everyone they could about Jesus. And they would rather have been tortured, imprisoned, and executed and killed rather than deny that Jesus was who the Bible says he is, the real true son of God who was crucified, buried, and raised from death and will one day return as the king of kings. John gave his life to this message. He refused to deny it. He was imprisoned. He was sent off to the island of Patmos, which was like modern day Alcatraz, alone. And, and, and he, at the end of his life, realized he's been preaching this and teaching this. He'd been pastoring. He'd been a pastor of churches in modern day Turkey. And he thought, you know, I need to write this stuff down before I'm gone. And so he wrote it all down. And he wrote a masterpiece of a biography of Jesus called the book of John. He didn't actually call it the book of John, that we call it the book of John. But what we're calling it in this series is the book of life, because it tells you how to find life through Jesus Christ. And when he wrote this story, he wrote exactly what God wanted him to write so that his words were not just his words, but were the Holy Spirit's words. And he wrote it in four sections. You see here four big sections of the book of John. There's what's called the prologue. We're going to look at that this morning. Then there's the first part, the book of signs, which tells the story of Jesus' earthly ministry and all the miracles he did to point to who he truly was. And then the book of glory is Jesus' final night with his disciples, his betrayal, his arrest, his 
sentence and his execution, and then his resurrection from the dead, and then there's a story at the end of him meeting with his disciples called the epilogue. And so this is the basic structure of what John has written down for us. And this is why, we saw this last week, the reason John wrote this, John 20, 31, he said these things at the very end of the book, at the very end, this was a literary convention of the day to give sort of a purpose statement for what you've written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John has written this to convince you that Jesus is who the bold book says that he is, and that by believing that, that you would have life. And it really is that simple. It really is that simple, that life is found in Christ and by believing in who Christ truly is. This whole book, the book of John, is about life. And it's about you finding life God intended you to live, and by finding that by and through the name of Jesus Christ. So let's find out together, not about the cliche Jesus or the cuss word Jesus, but the real Jesus here in the prologue of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Before we do that, as you are just, let's pause and just ask for the Holy Spirit to speak as we look into this text. I ask, Father in heaven, that you would send a fresh pouring out of your spirit upon your church and upon me as we look at this so that we would see the glory of Christ. We would see what's really here. We would see him as he truly is and that we would believe it and that by believing we would have life in his name. There are some here, Lord, who have never believed it or maybe used to believe it and they don't anymore or they thought they did and they're not sure now. And there are those who do believe it and they want to believe it yet and they want to go deeper into what they already know. I pray that you would meet each one of us at those points of our experience and our life and our desires and our distractions and all of it, Lord. Meet us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I only have 24 points, okay? Just a 24-point sermon, and that's it. I'm not joking. We're going to go. It's like going to be rapid-fire machine gun. You're going to get tired. You're not going to be able to take notes on every point, and that's kind of, I'm going to get to that in a minute. So do your best, but let's just let's go. The prologue, I remember in college, my pastor did a discipleship group for some of the college guys in the church, and he said that this was probably the most theologically deep part of the entire Bible, and I think he's right. There is nothing here but riches and fullness about who Jesus is. So first, the Word is the Word. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word is the word. The Greek word here is logos. And, and the background for it is, is there's, two, there's two things happening. There's secular philosophy who saw the logos in some cases as sort of like the principle behind the order of the universe. And then there's the Jewish Old Testament theology that is, sees the logos as the word of God that he spoke to bring creation into existence, to sustain the world, and to accomplish his purpose. And what John is saying is that both are right and both are incomplete in some ways. That the answer in academic philosophy, in secular philosophy, and the answer for Old Testament theology is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That the Word 
that the principle of life, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, whether you're a philosopher or a theologian, whether you're religious or non-religious, the answer is in the Word, Jesus Christ. And he's going to tell you about him now. The Word is eternal. The Word is eternal. In the beginning was the Word. That may call to mind another part of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is intentional. John is a master literary craftsman. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now he wants to draw that Genesis 1-1, the first verse in the Bible, to your mind and say, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. He has been around longer than anything else that has existed because he has existed forever. He is eternal. Number three, told you we were going to go fast. The Word is distinct from God the Father. See, it says the Word was with God. The Word was with God. If you're with someone, you are distinct from them, right? If I'm with Laura, it means Laura and I, that's my wife, are distinct people. We are distinct persons. We are distinct from one another. You can't be with yourself, right? It's like there's, there's something happening. If you say, I was with myself, well, that may be a way of saying, yeah, you were by yourself, but you're not distinct from yourself. The Word is distinct from God the Father. The Word and the Father are not each other. They are not each other. They are distinct from each other. But look at number four. The Word is fully God with the Father. The Word was with God and the Word was God. How can you be with and was at the same time? Well, the only way to explain that is what Christians call the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The only way to explain what the Bible teaches about God and Christ and the Holy Spirit is by the Christian doctrine that has been explained as the doctrine of the Trinity. We spent time talking about that in August. If you want to go on the website, some of those sermons are online. Godolo the sermon was called, called Godology 101. The Word was with God, the Word was God, fully God with the Father. Number five, the Word is a person, not it was. Most words you think about, like on your Cross United program, it says welcome at the top. You would never refer to that word as he or she. You would say it. It's an impersonal thing. It's a communication of information, but this doesn't say that. It says he was with God. This is a demonstrative masculine pronoun in the original. That doesn't matter. if He was this, this masculine person. Not in the sense of masculine like stereotypical man, but grammatically masculine. He, a person, was with God. Not a principle, not the universe, but he, a person, was with God in the beginning. Number six, the word made the world. Look at verse 3. All things were created by him, apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Um, in the original language, I wish, I wish I could just like do like the matrix thing and just like upload Greek into your head, because there's a beautiful distinction here between was and or is and become. So 
Jesus, it says, was in the beginning, existing, being, but all other things were created and became through him. There's a difference here between being and becoming. There's a difference between creator and creation. The word is the creator and creation is everything else. All things were made through him, and apart from him was not one thing that was created that has been created. So what does that mean? It means everything but God and the Word are created, and that the Word and God are somehow separate from creation. Number seven, the Word is life. Verse four, in him was life. Again, that word to be, it existed in him personally. We do not have life in ourselves. We receive life and sustain life from outside of ourselves. Your mom and dad, you know, you, you know, your kid, you know, if you're in middle school, your parents can talk to you about that later. They gave you life. And then if you don't eat and drink for a long enough period of time, your life, you, you need those things to live. If you are too... If you're you know, exposed too long to the elements of this world and heat and cold, you will lose your life. You are dependent on others and other things for your life. You do not have life in yourself. You will run out of fuel and you will die if you do not refuel your body. And eventually, no matter how much you refuel your body, it doesn't matter what you eat or what you drink, what it matters, eventually you're all going to die and I'm going to die unless Jesus comes back first. We do not have life in ourselves. We are dependent Jesus, the Word, is different. He is life. He had life in Himself. He was self-sustaining. Number eight, the Word is light. That life was the light of men. Remember, going back to Genesis 1, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And what's the first thing God said? Let there be light. The word is life and the word is light. He was there with the Father when creation was spoken into existence. The word was the one calling light out of darkness. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all there in creation. We saw in our Godology series, Genesis 1, 1 through 3. God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the word spoken. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're all there. They're all doing this together, eternally, one God, three persons. Number nine, I told you we were going to go fast. Yeah. It's, the word has a witness. Look at verses six through eight. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So now we talk about this guy, John. This is not John who wrote the book. This is a different John. This is John, sometimes called the Baptist or the baptizer. He was the one who came as a forerunner to, to Jesus and was baptizing people and pointing the, pointing the way. It says, he came as a witness to testify about the light. This was John's role, to put a spotlight on the light, if, if, as if that were possible, to, to, to use you know, a spotlight to shine light on the sun. He was pointing the way to the veiled in flesh deity of Jesus Christ. Number 10, the word gives light. So he is light and he gives light. Verse 9, 
the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. It gives light to everyone. He, he gives light he, in creation and in, a, in, in a, a common, gracious showing of who he is in the things that have been made. Romans chapter 1 says that the things that have been made testify about the character of God. That, that it's impossible to look at the world and think that there is no God. It is counterintuitive to look at the creation and not think that there is a creator. Now, people do it. People do it. But it's not the first impulse. That's why every culture everywhere throughout all of time has been religious. That's why secularism may seem like it's the predominant worldview of our day. But even in the West, the secular elitist intellectual West, it is a minority position, and even globally today, it is a minority position, because we're not wired to naturally look at the world and think, oh, that's just nothing. We're wired to see creation and see that there's a creator. Number 11, the world, excuse me, the word was ignored by the world he made. Look at verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him, or was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. They were literally ignorant, ignoring the creator who was among them and with them. The world that he made ignored him. Worse than that, number 12, the word was rejected by the people he loved. That should have a D at the end of loved. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him, John 1, 11. So the world ignored him. His people rejected him. When I was uh, in seminary, I worked at a hotel owned by a company called White Lodging. And it was a Marriott, but it was owned by this, this other company. And Mr. White was the guy who owned the company, and he was like a billionaire, like literally a billionaire. And he had his jet and whatever. And uh, he came to the hotel one day. And, you know, I was just like a lonely bellhop. I didn't care. I'm like, whatever, just give me my tips and let me out of here. You know, like, um, I'm serving the Lord, you know. <laughs> and, and people were like, the, like the managers and stuff, they were like freaking out because Mr. White was there. And he like owns it all. And they're like, you know, like, how are you doing, Mr. White? How can we help? Oh, it's so good to see you all. Every, you know, every, they're laughing at everything, you know. Like, this is, this is the nature of when the big boss, the owner comes to town, when he's in, in, in the house, what do you do? You roll out the red carpet and everything's focused on him. That's how it is. But here we see Jesus, the creator. The word came into the world and the world ignore him. He came to his people and his people rejected him. Number 13, the word gives adoption and life to anyone who believes. Look at verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, in contrast to the world that ignored him and the people that rejected him, all who did receive him, that's anyone, that's you, that's me. I don't care if you're black or white or Republican or Democrat or old or young or rich or poor, anyone, all who received him, he gave them the right to be children or to become children of God. Again, I wish I could put Greek into your head to see that when it says to be children, that it's saying the same thing that it said when it said he made the world, to become children. That the one who called the world into existence can call you into the family of God and the authority he has to make you a child of God and all of the benefits and blessings and security and joy that comes with that to those who believe in his name. 
who were born not of natural descent, nor the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. That we're going to see later in John chapter 3 when it talks about you must be born again. This is what it's talking about. There's your natural birth, but you must have a new spiritual birth. God must give you new spiritual life. And the only way that that comes is through hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gives adoption and life to anyone who believes. That's, that could be you right now today. You can have new spiritual life, all of your sins forgiven, all of your, your sinful slate wiped clean. Hope and joy, peace. Number 14, this is where it gets crazy. The word became a human. This again is that same word, the word became the word who eternally was, being, itself, creator, became part of the creation. The eternal God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. He took on human nature. Every, it doesn't mean he just put on like humanity like a, like a, indwelt it like an alien abduction or like a demonic possession. He truly became a man. He knew what it was like to experience the full range of the human experience from sadness and loneliness to having to go to the bathroom. He knew it all. He knew what it was like to have to go to sleep. He knew what it was like to be tired when he had to wake up early for work. He knew it all. He truly became a human person and lived and dwelt among us. The unbecoming creator became. Why would the immortal Word who had life in himself become a mortal human? Why would the self-sufficient God become a dependent human? Why would he do this? Why would he do this? We're going to see in these next few points why. 15, the word was visible. Verse 14, we observed his glory. Why would, he, why would the eternal self-sufficient God become a needy, why would the God who said in the Psalms that he didn't need the sacrifices of Israel because he's not hungry, he doesn't need their offerings because he's not thirsty, he doesn't need anything from any person because he is the self-sufficient God, why would he become a human baby who had to be nursed by his mother? Why would he do that? So that we could see his glory. That's why. So that we could see his glory. How do they see his glory? Look at verse, six, uh, verse 14, number 16. The incarnate word is the glorious son of the father. The glory as of the only, one and only son from the father. If you've got a KJV, King James, it will say uh, only begotten. Only begotten. The, the, the father eternally begetting life to his son. As the creed, the Nicene Creed says, begotten, not made. Eternally son of the father. He says, we saw his glory. Glory is the one and only son of the Father. How did they see his glory? Well, they saw it in his miracles. When Jesus turned water into wine in chapter 2. That was all like in college. That was one of favorite verses, right? See, it's okay. Wine is okay, right? Jesus turned water into wine. But the point of that wasn't the wine. The point was the glory that he revealed, John 2, 11, so that his disciples would believe. To, to do something of that magnitude. He said in John 8, 54, that if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing, but the Father glorifies me. 
How can God the Father glorify anyone without being guilty of idolatry? Well, he can only glorify one who is fully God with him. When Jesus went to his friend Lazarus, who had died, they told him, your friend is sick and he's going to die, and he gets there after Lazarus is dead, and he's in the grave. He's been there for days. He's starting to stink. The body's starting to rot. And he says, this is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus was glorified in his miracles, and he was also glorified in his crucifixion. In John 12, 23, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That the counterintuitive glory of God is that it is life in itself that gives up its life for another. I have glorified you, he said on earth to the Father as he prayed. Now glorify me. That Jesus was glorified in his miracles that John saw in his crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. That Jesus displayed the glory as of the only Son from the Father. Number 17, the incarnate word is full of grace and truth. Use that word incarnate. I used it in the last point and this point. What does that mean? It's a, it's a theological term. Incarnate means in flesh. Carne. If you ever had a carne asada, anything. We had it at the, the Las Mexicanas food truck last week. You got carne asada. What does that mean? It's, it's flesh. It's meat. So it's the enfleshment. It means Jesus became a human. That's what it means. The incarnate word, the word who became a human person, is full of grace and truth. Look at verse 14, full of grace and truth. Not just a little bit of grace and truth. Not just, not just a, 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 you know, you don't, not grace and truth. Like, remember when we got all bought hurricane snacks and you're trying to apportion them out to the kids so you don't run out, right? Um, or maybe not, and the kids, you know, they're bouncing off the walls and you're portioning things out. This, Jesus has an overflowing abundance of grace and truth. If you ever live paycheck to paycheck, you, know, you get that paycheck first day, you feel rich, right? That's what Jesus, he's full of that. But every day, all day, every day, he's full of grace and truth. Number 18, the word existed before John. Verse 15, Jesus testified concerning him and exclaimed, this is the one of whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Now, why is that incredible that John would say that? Because John was born six months before Jesus. So what's he saying? He, he outranks me because he existed before me. He pre-existed his human life because he was God forever. John says, in, you know, in that culture, being older was, a, was seniority, right? Firstborn, secondborn, older, younger. Elders had priority. But he says, even though this guy is younger than me in human life, he existed before me in his divine life. The word existed before John. Number 19. You thought I was joking when I said 24 points. I promise we're almost there. The word's fullness, number 19, brings grace and more grace. Verse 16 says, Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. And actually, this could be translated grace in the place of grace. That there, there, when, when it seems like you're going to run out, it's just more grace. It's like, you ever been to a restaurant with like a server who's really on their game? And it's like you can't even finish your drink before they bring you a refill? And then it's like more, so, so I like usually get Diet Coke when we go out to, 
dinner. And I also drink heavily when I drink. And so not alcohol, but just anything. And, um, and so I, I will drink, and, they, and we go to Wings and Things in Pompano, and, and they will bring me the, the like half-gallon version of the drink. And, I'll, and then I drink, but then I drink the whole thing, and they refill it again. It's just more and more. It's unlimited refills of Diet Coke. And by the end, I am so wired from all the caffeine and all the Diet Coke that I can't sleep all night. Jesus has grace upon grace from his fullness that you never will run out. You can drink it down as fast as you want. As you can drink as much as you want. You can get the biggest size of grace imaginable and it will never run out. He will refill it and refill it and refill it and refill it until you can't drink anymore. Grace in place of grace, grace upon grace. Number 20. The incarnate word is Jesus Christ. Now I know I've been saying that the whole time. So it's like, okay, yeah. But you have to watch the flow of the text. Because if you read this from verse 1 to verse 17, he's never mentioned the name of Jesus yet. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word was. And then he says, and there was the man sent from God whose name was John. And he was in the world, and the world did not know him. And the, his own people rejected him. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glorious of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he said, word, 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 and then he explains it more. He says, the glorious Son of the Father. But now in verse 17, if you're reading this for the first time and you've never seen it before and you don't know anything, you're like, oh my goodness, the Word is the Son and the Word and the Son is the Son is Jesus Christ. That he's, he's like doing the big aha reveal. It's, it's like you, you save the best gift till the end at Christmas, right? You open all the presents and it's like, oh, surprise, there's one under the tree that nobody saw and it's the big one, the best one. John is doing that. He's saying, here it is. The word is not just the son of God. The word, the son is Jesus Christ who brings grace and truth. That's point 21. Jesus brings grace and truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He contrasts this with the law of Moses, a law that could only bring death because sin in our hearts means we're not able to obey God's law. You're not able, I don't, I don't know how many of you have ever set a goal for yourself that you haven't been able to achieve, but I know it's all of you because you can't, you can't even obey the things you try to do for yourself. You can't, you can't even obey the simple rules of our land like not speeding on Lighthouse Drive on Friday getting pulled over and giving a warning, hypothetically, you know, just, um, <laughs> and you're doing 33, and the day before, you told your wife, I'm so glad they got, they're, they're, they're on this, because people drive way, too, those idiots drive way too fast, and then the cop pulls you over, and just, you know, not that I know anything about that. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Why do you need both? Well, Grace is undeserved favor, and truth is unfiltered reality. If you write anything down, that might be the one. Grace is undeserved favor, and truth is unfiltered reality. And without, one without the other will be a horror show. Halloween's coming up. Now, we're not big into Halloween in my house, but people are big into Halloween. What's like the mainstay decoration of Halloween? Skeleton. 
skeleton. Why? Because bones without a body is scary, while truth without grace is like a skeleton. But grace without truth, it's like a puddle of human flesh without, a, without bones inside of it. Both of them are gross. Both of them are a horror show. Grace without truth and truth without grace is a horrifying thing, but both together makes a living, beautiful reality. A beautiful person, a human being. Jesus brings grace and truth. Some Christians are all about grace, 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 grace. And we should be. I just said, Jesus' grace never runs out. But if it's not put, it's, if it doesn't have truth inside of it, it's, it's just... It's just a puddle. And some Christians are all about truth, 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 truth. But if it doesn't have grace on top of it, it's a, it's a skeleton. We need grace and truth, and they're both fully in Jesus Christ. There's a little book by Randy Alcorn, Prayer of Jabez Size, called The Grace and Truth Paradox. I read it long, long ago, and it talks about this. Probably like seven bucks on Amazon. It's worth reading. Number 22. Jesus Christ is the only begotten God the one and only Son who is himself God, verse 18. Jesus Christ is the only begotten God, the one and only Son, the only begotten God, the one and only God. Some people, some people say, the Bible never says Jesus is God. Well, yes, it does. So people, someone says that, well, you just don't know. John 1, 18, let me take you there. Number 23, only God the Son has seen God the Father. No one has ever seen God, verse 18, the one and only Son who is himself God is at the Father's side and he has revealed him. When Moses asked to see the glory of the Lord, God put him in the side of the rock and said, you can see my back. And what he meant by that is you can see like a glimpse of the veiled glory of who I am, but you can't see my face or you will be incinerated. But the son is forever been in the presence of the father. And number 24 has explained the father. The one who is at the father's side has revealed God. So why would Jesus, why would Jesus become a man? Why would the unbecoming word become the person of Jesus Christ to show us God, the real God, the one we all know is there, but we can't always put our finger on. We look outside and we see and we know there's something. And now we know specifically he is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is deep. I told you, this is deep theological stuff. My pastor in college, I said, told me this is one of the most, maybe the most theologically deep passages in the whole Bible. I don't even know how to preach it. I'm like, I can't, I can't do a three-point sermon. It's got to be at least 24. I just can't. It's just too much here. And uh, I said at the beginning, you're probably not going to be able to take notes. Some of you maybe did it. And by the way, extra credit, kudos to you if you did. I wouldn't have done it. I would have given up after point two. I mean, who, I mean, who does this? Who preaches a 24-point sermon? I mean, it's just overwhelming. It's overwhelming. That's, that's the point, actually. You're supposed to be overwhelmed. You're supposed to be exhausted by the glory and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You're supposed to say, whoa, I don't even know if I understood like half of that. I don't, I, wow, like Jesus is way bigger than I ever really realized he was. Jesus is better than your best thought about him. And really, that's the first step of salvation. 
the first step of salvation and the pathway of adoption that Jesus offers to anyone, regardless of their background, regardless of who you are, is to recognize how big and great Jesus actually is. He is way better. He is way better than you even realize. He is way bigger than you can even imagine. When I was in college, we were driving on our family vacation uh, up to Tahoe, and we were driving past a billboard on the highway, and it was like a cheesy Christian billboard that was like, I just kind of wanted to groan because it was like, I feel like it gives Christians a bad name, and it's like, you know, I don't know what it said, but I said, man, that's so dumb. Why would they do that? And then my, you know, I was like self-righteous, like I might have been early seminary, I don't remember. And they're like, well, what would you do? And I thought for a minute, I thought, this is my billboard. If I could, if I could get a billboard, it would say this, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than your best thoughts about him. Jesus is better than you could ever imagine him. Jesus is better than any other competition. Jesus is better. And to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. So there's some ways for you to respond on your connection card, which I mentioned. Maybe you've never taken that first step of faith in Jesus, and you need to do that today. We're going to have a time of prayer, and you can respond right now. Maybe you're not sure what it all means. Maybe you just know, I need to come back. I just, you know, I don't know all that's happening. I don't know, like, if I'm ready to, like, really, like, really believe all this stuff. But I know I can, I can at least come back next week. Here's what I want to ask all of you to do. I want to ask you all to take some time to let this passage and this truth overwhelm you this week. Take John 1, 1 through 18. In your Bible app, in your Bible, we have free Bibles in the back um, that are yours to keep, the hardback black ones in the Christian Standard Version. You can print it off from the internet. There's a hundred ways you could do it. Take this week, John 1, 1 through 18, and take five minutes a day and let it soak into your mind. Listen to it on audio, read it, print it out, write on it, make notes. I did, a, I did, a, I did an, uh, an experiment, and I read it out loud while I was preparing. It took one minute and 38 seconds, and that was reading slowly. So five minutes, what is that enough time to do? It's enough time to read it three times. It's enough time to think about it, and I want you to do that every single day this week. And to, to, to now that you kind of have a framework to understand this super rich and deep passage, to let it shape your heart and your mind so that you can truly believe the real name of Jesus the Christ. Not the curse word Jesus, not the cliche Jesus, but the Jesus who actually is. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending your one and only Son, the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. I pray as we looked in this passage that just is overwhelming, that you would overwhelm us again in a good way that you would bring righteous tears to our eyes when we think about the glory of your name, we think about the brokenness of our world and how much they need this and how much we need this, that you would bring tears of sorrow over the conditions of our own hearts and the condition of the people around us, and you would bring tears of gratitude and joy over thinking about the word who became flesh and lived among us. I ask all of this in that great name, Jesus Christ, amen.